So as an artist, you never want to compromise your creativity for what you think will sell. But if you can, that's awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you can say, oh, this is something I love. Like this is really cool. And I can see these really cool paintings. And oh my God, there's so many people out there that might be interested in this. That's Andrew Pedersen. I'm Cara Duffy. And this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. So you just had the best Friday ever. Dude, good Friday. (laughs) Big Friday, a lot of traveling, but yeah, good Friday. As we're jumping in, let's tell everyone who you are, where you are in the world, and what you're up to. Uh, Okay, my name is Andrew Pedersen. I'm an artist and creator, engineer, fabricator in San Clemente, California. And why was today a big day for you? Uh, So I have an art show coming up October 13th. this place called the bike shed in Los Angeles and um, like budgets are obviously always something when you're doing a show on your own, like something that you're worried about, probably worried more about that than anything really. So trying to do things on like a shoestring budget, but then you start to think about, uh, we may not be getting the best lighting. We may not be getting the best this and that. So, I had kind of a moment where I'm like, what's the point of the show if my art doesn't look good on the wall? So I'd gone up there today to meet with a lighting guy and talk about um, how he would light it, how it was going to look the best. Because the original estimate was like full-blown museum-level lighting, and it was expensive. But it would have been amazing. Um, and so we're like, okay, what can we do with the less? And what will it look like with less? And will my art still you know, shine. So fortunately it sounded like that's totally going to work out. And more importantly, he's just a great dude. I think like for me, if I meet someone, I'm like, okay, this feels different now. Like over email, I'm like, oh, I don't like this guy. I don't know about this guy. <laughs> and then you see their face and you're like, oh yeah, he's, he's a good dude. He's a salt <laughs> of the earth. Good English dude. And I think that place, the bike shed, they're like old blood, you know, like everybody goes way back with each other and I really trust them through a mutual friend. So to have him work with them or be working with them for so long made me just feel like, okay, okay, cool. I understand the origin of this. This is someone I don't need to worry about uh, what they're doing with my money. Like, I feel like they're going to maximize my investment in them, you know? So yeah, it was awesome day. Well, and so you are having your first solo exhibit that you are self-funding. Yeah, yes. And, you know, we were joking because I'm working with you on it that you felt like this was planning a wedding. It's the same. It's the same thing. But I, well, you know, it's funny because I, I watched my neighbors get married and help them with a lot of their wedding and same thing, tight budget for them and just figuring out ways to make it work. So we were making like this huge truck beer run all together and like loading and unloading it at the venue, which was to me just felt like, we were about to throw a huge party and that that set a really great mood to it. But watching how much they were work they were putting into the event and getting the event ready to like be doing it for an art show right now, I'm like, this is all the same stuff. Like they were worried about lighting. They were worried about tables and they were worried about where people were, what people were going to do. So I was like, oh my God, this feels the same. And then the other day I was like, oh, that's interesting because I might make money at the end of the <laughs> like. Like, I felt better with the idea that, like, oh, man, you do this wedding, and then at the end of it all, like, you're just married now, and, like, 
can you quantify mm -hmm. the amazing experience you had for sure but like to be able to throw an event like this that feels like a wedding and have it be like oh it's yeah i was trying to think of how to compare it to a wedding a wedding differently but this idea that it's so much preparation for this one day this one thing and how magical can i make it you know and yeah. I, actually i think the reason why i thought it was so much like a wedding was when i saw the venue and i was like oh my god i know how a bride feels when <laughs> like she sees that venue space or she's like oh my god babe this is where we have to get married like i saw that space and i was like Oh my God, this is where I have to have the show. And once we saw the sticker price, I was like, I don't, I don't care. Like, this is way more money than I ever want to spend. But like, if I don't have it here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna regret it. It's just not going to feel right to me. Well, and part of why the bike shed in LA is such a perfect fit is because of the context of your paintings. And like the entire collection is about following guys doing flat track vintage racing on motorcycles. Yeah. Yeah. So the venue that I'd really wanted to have it in before that was a Peterson automotive museum, just cause I was like, oh, that's a good fit and it should, it could look really cool there. And once we started looking into that venue, like the venue actually wasn't that bad to rent for the night, but we were like, Oh my God, we're gonna have to set up lights, walls. They provided nothing for us really, other than like this incredible museum to be at and tons of parking compared, <laughs> compared to the bike shed. But, um, I was like, Oh, once I, once I realized that the bike shed was the spot, I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like we get, I get free clientele. Like I get people that are specific, so specifically interested in these paintings. Like I realized that there's layers to, there's layers of interest that people have in these, in motorcycles and motorcycle arts. Like there's the guy that rides on the weekends and polishes his Harley after mm -hmm. every ride and like has all this new gear and is like a successful attorney or banker or something like there's that kind of square dude. And then there are these guys that are like culture freaks and so into it and such a core group and they're spending every dollar they have to like invest in their bike and make their bike cooler and faster. And to feel like, oh all these painting these paintings appeal to all of those people and that's a pretty large group so as an artist when you're like you never want to compromise your creativity for what you think will sell but if you can that's awesome <laughs> you know what i mean like if you can say oh this is something i love like this is really cool and i can see these really cool paintings and oh my god there's so many people out there that might be interested in this um i think that was a really really incredible turning point for me because i think in the sense of painting portraits i love portraits i love portraiture that really is like my passion but it's real hard to sell somebody a picture of, of a random person no matter how well it's painted so finding like it don't even feel like compromises, but finding unique ways to change what you're doing to make it have a larger appeal, I think is like, it feels like marketing. And if you can do it without compromising your creative integrity or anything like that, it's like, that's when you're really in that like narrow space of like, oh shit, this is a good, this is a good thing you have going on. Well, and I feel like as we have decided to have the event and we pick the date and we picked a space, like, all of these things keep happening, like these really amazing kismet moments 
of who else gets involved or who else we talk to that doesn't have just one connection, but has multiple layers of how you and this art and this space all make sense for them to be there and to be participating. And there's a lot of people that I've had on the podcast and many clients too, where you take a leap of faith to do something you're terrified to do. And these golden moments make you feel like it is going to happen. (laughs) It's going to work. So how has that experience been for you once you decided, like, hells yes, we're going to do it. Holy shit. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's been such a cool, slow, like, momentous build. And to think about us having early conversations with working together and, like, I I really want to do the show. This is sort of the reason why I would like to hire you. But also there's incredible other things obviously that I need help with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe at the time seem insane that I didn't know them, but now it's like huge parts of my life. Um, but yeah, to think like, okay, we're going to put this flagpole out on the horizon and say, okay, let's think about having this show in three or four months and let's really start ironing down what that looks like as far as us being prepared to do it. Mm-hmm. So like how many paintings do you want to have? How many paintings are you getting done? How many paintings do you need to do? Like that really um fundamental part of it was like that i can expand and contract that so much where like i can pick away at a painting while i'm doing other things and making other small paintings i can pick away at a painting for years but until i'm like okay you need to have this done i can sit down and be like okay i'm not painting drawing working on anything else i'm just painting this painting and then the painting will finish like the biggest painting in the series i did in a week and a half like and the smaller paintings took um, some took a year, some took like eight months because I just had so many other things going on and I would only pick away at them in a little bit at a time. But when I'm fully focused and dedicating, they move fast. But as far as like the synchronicities and like mm-hmm. the momentum of this project coming together, it's really been like, I think I'll always be in my way more than anyone else in my life. And it's, it's glorious to be self-aware of that but it's also a bummer because you're like fuck i just want to get out of my way and you can even have someone on the phone being like dude get out of the way you know and you're like i'm i'm trying i don't want to be in the way so i think like when you have these serendipitous moments that really squash the fear or the things that because i can pin it down and like i'm slowing this down and i'm sandbagging this process because i'm scared Mm-hmm. and like i can make that last forever I, I can make that last two more lifetimes if i want and never accomplish anything but the idea that like okay i'm gonna have to get scared to for this to work like i'm gonna have mm-hmm. to go to a scary place to get this to work and then once you start investing in something i think that like is your calling and you're scared to do it the universe will show up for you and be like dude you did something scary we noticed and like watch this like watch what happens next so when those moments started happening i think i started really when i would hit a place of fear or resistance or a place that i was like i don't like where i don't know where i'm going or where this is going right now and i'm i'm afraid Mm -hmm. i would be like oh fuck i I know something on the other there's a cool surprise on the other side of this like there's a treat for me on the other side of this And so I started getting like pretty hot and bothered to like get into the scary stuff and that feeling of like, oh, I'm scared to do this. I have to do it now. And that was like, I think that's what really got like, 
you could feel the steam coming off the train like when that started happening because it was just kind of chugging and idling and we were like are we doing this are we not doing this like there's so much other work to do and i was like yeah let's do do the (laughs) other work i don't know about the show and um but once it all really started happening going i think probably the most pivotal moment was when i was in london and i think you had just looked at the peterson as a location and we Mm -hmm. felt good about it and then i was hanging out with my great friend and painter vince camp and he's a friend of vicky and dutch's at the bike shed and we were in the city look going to museums cruising around on boris bikes and i was like oh, let's go to the bike shed and i want to get another bike shed london shirt because they don't have them in america it's like my cool thing to have in la i got this london bike club bike shop shirt and so we get there and it, Dutch was there and I hadn't met him before. And he's like, Oh, I just, you're from LA. I just opened a place in LA. And, you know, both Vince and I's ears like went up and we're like, Really? And he's like, Yeah, there's like an 8,000 square foot event space there. And Vince and I was like, Other ear goes up. (laughs) We're like, Really? And then he went on to do his thing and we sat down and ate. And we both sat down. We're like, I should have my bike. (laughs) I should have my show at the bike shed. And um, so we were just like, kind of buzzing about that idea and uh about that possibility because again it just being like the perfect fit Mm -hmm. so then we finished our meal and i go in to go shopping and i look on the tv playing and there's like a bike shed la commercial on their tv in there and i'm like oh shit that's go from my painting so one of the guy who's in my paintings who's like uh, honestly the guy that wins most of the (laughs) the races probably the most winningest rider in this class that i documented is in their commercial for their shop, the shop in LA, the LA bike shed. I'm like, oh my God, like you're not going to get. You can't get a bigger sign. Yeah, you can't get it better than that. So I was ri- totally riding on a high the rest of that day. And I think I called you and said, hey, we we need to look into this. And then yeah. it wasn't until a couple of days later, you went there and you're like, yeah, this is 100%. This is the spot. So just stuff like that, like that story is enough to like, that story is enough to carry the event, mm-hmm. but like that's just one of the stories. Like it keeps happening. <laughs> like, it just <laughs> keeps happening, and I don't. It'll be interesting for the next show that we do this on, because I'm like, it, can it be this magical <laughs> every time? Like, can I just create yep. such a magical situation, or can these situations be so insanely serendipitous and magical? Like every time I do them, because if so, that's that's fucking awesome. Like, that's why I want to be an artist and why I want to share my art with the world is like this incentive that I'm getting is greater than any payout I could get or selling the show out. You're just like, oh, this is what I'm, this is what I've always felt like I was supposed to do. And this is the universe telling me like, we're here to make sure you keep doing it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that, that stuff is wild. And it just, yeah, it just keeps happening all over. Today was the same. We're just like, why are you here when I'm here? This is so weird. Like at the framer, you're like, why yeah. am I, why did I show up at the same time as an interior designer who's going to help me like share her great opinion about all my framing, all my art? Like, why are you here right now? Mm-hmm. Um, stuff like that is, uh, is just buzzing. And all yeah. the times when we've thought, oh my God, this is way too expensive. We can't do it. And then we find some workaround, we find some alternative where that person is totally willing to compromise once they see what we're doing or find out enough about what we're doing. I think that, I don't know, I think that one is a testament to the circle that we've gotten into. And two, I think it's just like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's it's being delivered to me in a pretty easy way. 
And still the hardest part is myself. <laughs> I love that the universe is making sure that the hardest part is still just myself and yeah. me trying to overcome what I'm doing. Because I think if there are more challenges outside of what I need to work on personally, it would be so much harder. Well, and I think, you know, so we met through the amazing Mark McGarry, who connected us. He's one of your best friends. He's one of my, he and Elizabeth are some of my closest friends. And I think when two people meet through great humans like that and we keep finding other great humans who want to work on this project i think it's something that you and i share where it's like if it's not an amazing crew to build something with it's not as much fun right it doesn't feel the same way yeah i think i think what's amazing yeah i love when you can make a fast friend like that where you're like i know this person I know our mutual friends so well that like I already love you and trust you. Like yeah. I'm, I don't have to worry about that. And so you can take so much like, for me, so much time that I take to be like, okay, what is? How's this person going to deal with this? How's this person? Who this really is? Real shady. Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> real. Like it takes me a while to trust someone. And so when you have an amazing, incredible mutual friend that just speaks so highly, you're like, okay, we're dialed. I don't yeah. have anything to worry about. Um, and then uh, using your network for PR or anything else, um, I automatically feel the same way where I was like, all right, Kara's super trustworthy. Anybody else in her circle, she's not going to mess with anybody that's not going to deliver, not going to be cool and not going to be fun. And so I think we have this little microcosm that we're living in. And it wasn't up until recently that we had someone who didn't fit. Yeah. (laughs) We interacted with someone who didn't fit. And it was like, oh whoa this is it was weird (laughs) like this is also a type of person that we haven't had to interact with at all during this whole process and this seems this is wild this is wildly different Mm -hmm. and we're really like okay do we even need to talk about what just happened no sick (laughs) okay next next thing next option and even with Dutch and Vicky, like getting in with them and their blue collar people and they're trying to be successful on their own and they're itching and scratching. And like to see that I saw a lot of like the spectrum of like, okay, here I am investing all I have, hoping that this is successful. And here are some other people investing possibly all they have in something exponentially more gigantic (laughs) than what i'm investing in and like it made it didn't make sense but it gave me an immense amount of compassion where it's like oh okay i now understand the price you're charging me and i know you would want to charge me less if you could and you can't and you're doing your best to be successful and like yeah we're one night out of their 365 dude dude, totally (laughs) dude totally and like i think I think it gave me an immense amount of compassion to be like understanding where uh, we're negotiating with them from where you're like, oh, you would give this to me. I truly believe you would give me this place. Well, they were so excited. Like when we had the walkthrough with Fiona and Vicky, when we were telling the story and they were freaking out that Go was in the paintings also. And they were freaking out about who you knew and the connections. And they started throwing all these other ideas back. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what I love. Like I know yeah. when, when I have a new client intro call and my brain's going a mile a minute and yeah. I can't wait to start working on the project, that it's going to be good. And to meet people like them, as well as Alex and Maggie at Little Social Co., who when we talk to them, 
they're like, what about this and this and this and this? And they want to give you so much more because they're so invested immediately. It's it's not even my show and it makes me so excited. <laughs> no, it's true. And I think like once I once I saw that in them where it's like, okay, here's where I can see where they have room to help mm-hmm. that's not monetarily. Like yeah. I realized that the opportunities that are developing as we do this first show together, like I've created something that is pretty priceless at this point and well worth the price of entry that it costs to have my show there that night. Um, And I think for me, like I would rather invest money and know that I built a relationship and they know that I'm committed and they know that I'm serious. And I'm like, it's like the same reason you charge what you charge. It's like, no one's going to pay that and not take it seriously. Or no one's at a place in their life where they're like, maybe I'll give this a try. Like, I think everybody should bet on themselves at some point. And I like, I think that first step is like starting to work with you where you're like, this is a big bet on myself. Yeah. Like if somebody told me like, I'm going to give you that allowance a month for yourself. I wouldn't bet on that. But if I give it to someone else, I'm like, shit, dude, you better do what she says. Like you're committed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was like, I think that was really, yeah, I was so glad we had that in-person meeting with him because it mm-hmm. felt really different before, before we went in there. So you have been an artist since you were a kid, but you've gone through phases of ignoring it, hiding it. <sighs> Mostly hi- yeah, hiding more than ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Which is weird. Yeah, it was funny to just... So Kara just read and I wrote like my life story for this interview. So it's fresh on our minds kind of right now, which is great. But yeah, it's it almost seems like a little murky now that part of my life when I like wasn't sharing my art with the world as a young child, like as I'm talking like 10 to 15 or 10 to 20 probably. Um, but yeah, so my parents were art teachers. My mom taught art history, drawing and painting, design, things like that in, at the high school level. So she helped put portfolios together for kids to go to college and everything. And that was like part of my life in a way that you're just like, oh, this isn't special. This is just like, doesn't everybody's parents have like, drawings from high school kids all over their dinner table you know like to look at and watch her like and she would talk and critique and i would she would share it all with me and so i was just like i would just observe and be like holy shit you're totally right like that is that does look so i was getting these like off the cuff lessons in art um but and then my my stepdad he was a junior high teacher and he taught ceramics photography and drawing, maybe drawing and painting too at the junior high level, which is not like they don't take it quite as seriously then. Um, but he was an amazing creative dude too. And then built built custom cars, hot rods, like at home on the weekends. And um, and yeah, that was like super creative people, like crazy creative people. Um, but yeah, like, so I had access to everything. And if I was ever like... And we had so many books, like so many books of everybody. If I ever like, if we were watching a movie or something and there was a Picasso in the background and my mom would be like, how'd you see that Picasso? And I'd be like, oh yeah, that was kind of cool. And then it'd be like, boom, 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 like five <laughs> books on my lap, like the Sears Picasso's life story. And I'd look through it and any artist I brought up, she would be like, oh yeah, they're in here and this and that. And so I really started to like, 
the romance of art and art history to me is something that like I didn't discover that till recently how much I enjoyed that as a kid. Um, but yeah, if I ever had an interest in any medium like watercolor, she'd be like, here's watercolor set. Here's watercolor brushes. Here's watercolor paper. Here's how you do it. Um, and so I always had access to whatever I wanted to do. And it would always be like a bit of the like, you know, your dad was the all-star quarterback in high school and like now he wants you to be the quarterback and you're like, I don't know. And then you're the quarterback and he's like, isn't it the best son? And you're like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> like a little too much pressure and excitement around it. And as a teenager, you're like, this sucks because I need to do the absolute opposite of what my parents are telling me. But like, it's just kind of fun. <laughs> like, is this fun? And I am interested in this. So I kind of started to like, hide it and be like no this is mine like i don't want to be critiqued i don't want to be told if it's good or not like i'm exploring it and i wanted the freedom to explore it and i kind of didn't i kind of didn't have it not in a bad way like i know their intention was to help and i know their intention was like we should make our son a great artist because being a great artist is awesome but i was like i don't i kind of want to just do my own thing um at and, the same time, you started having another passion. Yeah, and so then I was lived in Idaho when this is all happening. So I started skiing uh, with my with my dad, and my stepdad was a ski team coach too. Um, and we were pretty active, just outdoors stuff. So I started snowboarding, and I was like skateboarding before that. And then snowboarding was a new thing. This is like early mid nineties, may early nineties, probably when I was first starting to do it. And so I just absolutely fell in love with that. And I was like, this is my thing. I'm going to be a professional snowboarder. And which is like totally realistic. Like, I don't know when I, when kids say like, I want to be a formula one driver. You're like, go, go for it, dude. Like <laughs> it probably won't happen, but like, go for it, dude. And, and in the early nineties, it wasn't so unrealistic yeah. to become a pro snowboarder. Yeah. There was, and it's so interesting that you were up against versus however <laughs> many there are now yeah and like the level that the sport is at too like that's something i talked to a friend of mine recently james jackson who's like a uh, professional snowboard coach like he coaches professional like x games winning olympic medal winning snowboarders and i'm like what do you do like what are they doing man he's like i don't even know he's like i'm scared i'm scared of where the sport's going and i was like oh my god aren't you so glad we were in it when we were in it and he's like right like the things we could do to become a noteworthy snowboarder were like so you wouldn't even show up on the map now you wouldn't even be in the top 30 percent probably of professionals you'd be what every kid's doing on a Sunday yeah totally Sunday. they're like oh yeah i learned that a couple years ago i was really shy as a kid super shy and then i would be insanely wacky and obnoxious once you got to know me um but i remember my uh, telling my dad i think i want to go to the snowboard camp and he's like by yourself and i'm like yeah man and he i remember him just being like holy shit he must really love this <laughs> like if he's willing to go so far out of his comfort zone to like go stay at some camp with a bunch of teenage kids he doesn't know anybody like he this is how bad he wants it so I started doing that when I was like 14 or 15 and it just became like this amazing thing that I would do every year. And I was so in love with it. I'm like you get to go snowboard in the summer. It's awesome. But um, I started making great friends there. And the last year I went, I met this group of guys that all lived in New Hampshire. And so this is how Mark McGarry comes into my life the year, uh, the next year in the future of this. <laughs> so I meet these guys 
and they're my counselors. And there are two of them were my counselors, Mike Parziel, Brian Barb, and then a couple other guys. And they're all roommates. And I'm like, how is this possible? Like, there's like six of you guys now that they're roommates. And so I started like inquiring more like, how are you guys? And I'm 18 at this point, And they're early, barely 20, 21, maybe. And I'm like, how do you guys have so many roommates? Where do you guys live? And they're like, oh, dude, we live in this like abandoned ski resort that got turned into like a bed and breakfast or a dorm or something. And there's like 24 rooms or something. And we all live there and just snowboard. And like when it snows, we can ride in our backyard. It's a whole mountain. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. This is like the coolest thing ever. And it's your Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is like, this is perfect. And I had been getting... I want to say a lot of pressure but some pressure from my parents about like you should go to college you should figure out what you want to do with your life like you should you should pursue a career like and not just be a ski bum in their world you're like a ski bum because really someone making a career out of snowboarding was like your parents wouldn't know that people were actually really doing that and like it's actually people are making a lot of money doing it at that it was time just starting just starting to and like yeah it was on that projection of just like where is it going to plateau it's it's absolutely nuking into space as far as popularity and like people loving it um it was a really cool time to be involved with the sport i think but so I had gone for two sessions that year because it was my last year and like my graduation present my i remember in hindsight this is funny because I go to Europe so much now, but my mom was like, don't you want to go to like Europe for your high school? And I was like, hell no, I want to go to camp for like two two sessions, which is like 20 days, so almost a whole month. So anyway, I was there for almost a whole month and I became really good friends with these counselors. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know if I want to go to college. I don't know what I'll go to college for, but I just want to snowboard and I just want to like live my life and do something that's not like staying at home in, a, in Boise. And they're like, oh, you should just come live with us out there. And like, it's so fun. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I will. And I just kept chewing on it, thinking about it. And then I remember going home from camp that summer and calling them, <laughs> no cell phones, calling them at the lodge and having like a camper answer. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, hey, can you find Mike or Brian? You know, and they're like, oh, hold on. And then you could hear him like yelling, Mike. And then they answer the phone. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, hey, this is Andrew, like that camper that you're talking. I think I want to go move with you guys. And I could hear him be like, Brian, Brian, he's, Andrew's going to come live with us. <laughs> like they were pumped. And so, yeah, it was an incredible, it was an incredible opportunity that at the time you're so naive that like you don't think about like i had no job out there i had no i didn't i didn't know what this place looked like i didn't know who all the other 20 people were that lived there but it was just like yeah let's go 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 and it was insane it was an insane thing to do and also like coming from the west coast back to the east coast is complete opposite of what everyone in, yeah. in winter sports would ever do like the writing is is exponentially worse the further east you get so so many of my friends that i was telling we're gonna do this are like what are you talking about what are you thinking and i was like i don't know it's different and like i remember meeting someone who was from pennsylvania and moved to utah and lived with utah i've snowed with them a bunch in utah and he's like dude the the, the snow's this hard and he just <laughs> tapped his coffee table and i was like i remember just being like oh he's probably he's right you know like yeah. he's right but yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't care. Like I, I just wanted to get away from home, you know, like I just want to try something new and have an adventure. And it was incredible. It was like, 
fully life-changing, you know, experience and kind of what projected me into, I think projected me into like celebrating my individuality. Is there a theme yeah. that every time you make these big shifts in your life, you find people on the other side who are excited to support you and bring you in? Yeah. I, it's interesting. I think, again, like me being the one thing in my way is like I'm I'm mole and like I think about stuff for a really I, I'll chew on it for so long and as like I love problem solving I love thinking about all the options for possible outcomes possible solutions like I really love that and I think that's why I've gotten so good at the careers that I'm in is that like there are so many different ways to solve a problem. And I just love to like get out of the box and be like, how far out of the box can we get to try to find a, a solution for this? And, and I think that's an asset, but also sometimes it's like a huge deficit where you're like, I should have just, I could have told them then, like I knew then that I was going to do it. But I think a lot of times what will get in my way of those situations and why I think it gets celebrated so hard when I finally do do it is I have a sense of a, a pretty low sense of self-worth and I'm thinking like I'm a burden to these guys. They were just saying that to be kind. They didn't really mean it. Like I'll get in my head about those things about like nobody really wants like look at me. I'm a, I'm like so hyperactive and wild and crazy and then like but also shy and like it's ridiculous. Like who would want to hang out with me? You know, like that's meanwhile, it's like everyone. Meanwhile, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, everyone loves it. it. They're cracking up. I'm doing ridiculous things and it's fun. But in my head, I'm just like, uh, that I'm overwhelming. Like people don't like it. But so the reason why I think it was so hardly celebrated was I was like, I feel, I feel uncomfortable asking for this. Cause I don't think they really want to do it. And then, you're expecting them to be like, oh, yeah, we don't know. Maybe it'll work out. Let us look into it. But when they're like, oh, he's doing it. He's going with it. You're like, oh, shit. like it's such a memorable moment. And I think mm -hmm. probably because I thought about it and talked about it so much to them. I remember for days just being like, I think I like I really think I might do that. Are you guys serious? Um, and so I think I'd really gotten a bit of their hopes up. And they and also like I can look now. You know, what's cool is to look down from yourself being a mentor and some young kid who's excited has a good head on their shoulders. You can tell they're like, they have it. They yeah. have that thing. And you want to be an advocate for them. And you want to show them like, here's, here's some cool fucking ways to live your life that maybe your parents didn't tell you about. But like, get a load of this. <laughs> you know, like, you can live at a lodge and just snowboard whenever you want in your backyard and like we'll party and we'll go to the mountain all together like 10 of us and we'll just have the most insane day snowboarding so you're in new hampshire snowboarding for a while and then you've told me that you realized you were seeing other people who um just oh, had some extra magic and yeah like, i might need to shift what i think my opportunities are yeah so i had I had an incredible time that year. It was one year and it was the last year that it's called the lodge. Uh, it was the last year that, that the lodge existed, that all these guys stayed there. You're hucking yourself off stuff. Like that's what you're trying to do for a yeah. job. And that was when it started to change for me where I was like, I'm getting hurt. I'm getting concussions. I'm watching these guys around me that are like fearless and land on their feet. They're like fearless cats. And I was like, I am not 
a fearless cat. <laughs> like I'm a scared. I'm cat. scared, and I'm getting hurt a lot. And like this mm-hmm. isn't that much fun for me. And like I could kind of see the bottom coming up and being like, "All right, what? What am I gonna do? Like this career isn't gonna work out. I don't want to be in the industry. Like I didn't want to be a team manager or like working somewhere like that. So I was really like thinking, uh, "What am I gonna do with my life? You know, like." And not in any rush, mm-hmm. you know, like I think I probably took a year of being like, I'll keep snowboarding, I'll keep doing odd jobs. And um, th- it's a really fun life. Like it's a really fun life to snowboard as much as you can. <laughs> like everyone loves that idea of that life. Um, but I started thinking like how working on cars was really fun. So my stepdad was this huge man. I'm six, three. He was probably six, six, but like. Really? But like. A, a shit house, like huge dude, like enormous man, not fat, not overweight, but he was just this big, bulky guy. Like when he gets in the car, you know that Rob got in the car. Like he was this massive, and he just had hands like a frying pan. <laughs> and I remember like working on stuff on this car. It was a 1954 shoebox, shoebox coupe, and there were some areas he couldn't get in, like under the dash, and around the carburetors or like little detailed things and he'd just be like can you come help me out with this and i'd be like yeah, whatever yeah and naturally like as a 14 year old kid like you can't like your stepdad like you can't like what your parents like and you can't like your stepdad for sure and these moments that i had in hindsight were incredible bonding moments that i had with my stepdad and as hard as i wanted to dislike him he was the coolest fucking dude yeah. <laughs> like there was nothing i could do like I was going to like this dude because he was so great. Mm-hmm. So I would do work with him on that stuff and it was really fun. And we would drive, we'd work on the car and then you go drive it around and you're like, oh, this is super cool. Like, I, I can't help it. This is really cool. And so we would get to use, since he was a teacher, we would get to use the like school body shop and the school oh, yeah. shop that they teach kids how to work on cars, we get to use that space. But I would only get to go there on the weekend. And I was like junior high, middle school. And so there'd be like high school kids there sometimes welding and stuff. And I'd be like, oh my God, this place is super cool, you know? Um, and just to see all the projects and everything that was going on, I was like, that was, you know, at the time you're like, I'm I'm into snowboarding. I'm not into this. But mm-hmm. in hindsight, you're like, why are all these vivid images of this place and these things being like, flashing in my mind yeah um and then also at that time like monster garage was just starting and so i was like oh holy like this is what's happening in california this is so fucking cool like this is i think what i'm what i want to do and then i was so lucky because rob had grown up with boyd coddington boyd coddington's from gooding idaho like tiny (laughs) tiny town i don't know if there's even a thousand people that live in this town it's like middle of nowhere idaho and so he's very famous hot rod builder uh american hot rod was his show so anyway um i can make the story so much longer but boyd owed rob a huge favor because he had found this great painter from idaho who was a really good friend of my dad's my stepdad's and so i said hey do you think i could get a job at boyd's and he's like oh this is like it's it was that moment where like you tell your quarterback dad that you want to be a quarterback and if you can like get on the team that he's a coach on or something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so he was just like uh, he must have just called him immediately after we hung up you know and so 
he made the call and he's like, yeah, bring it, bring the kid down. And it was awesome because my dad was so honest and he was just like, kid doesn't know anything. Like <laughs> he knows how to help me. He knows how to do some things here. And boy was like, don't worry about it. Like send him down. And so once I got down there and same thing, like I had probably $500 in my pocket and I just packed up all my stuff and moved to La Habra, California with like, I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know. I just moved there. And like, I was even staying in Lucadia and like commuting for a while at a friend's house. And um, so, yeah, just that stuff as a kid that like, it seems fearless, but I think it was just naivety. <laughs> like, I just didn't know how many things didn't make sense about what I was doing. But I mean, I had that opportunity and I was taking it. So um, Charlie Hutton, who was the painter there at the time, was my stepdad's good friend and had gotten him the job there so as soon as he found out that like rob was my stepdad it was like say no more you're mine i you're my kid basically now yeah. and charlie and i just hit it off and we like were like family we became brothers totally fell in love with each other and just had so much fun working together and it's one of those places where like you're when you work in that industry especially in hot rod and custom car culture you're you're nothing else like that is mm -hmm what you do it's your identity it's a 60 80 100 hour a week commitment and like you don't you complain about wanting to go surf or wanting to get sleep or things but you don't stop working that much like you just is it because of the like the community or the tribe you're in like everyone is what everyone's doing for the bigger project or the I don't. whole I mean, there was just these crazy deadlines that they would have for the show to make like entertainment. Yeah. But even when I was working at companies that weren't, didn't have shows, it's just sort of that industry where it's like, oh, you always have to do this. It's so much work, you know, like it's, it's really just so much work and there's no way to get around it. Like it's manual labor. You're banging metal with a hammer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like li in All a literal <laughs> sense for a long time um and you're just sanding you're just sanding and sanding and sanding to get it perfect so it just takes a it just takes a lot of work and if you want to compress that time and i think almost sometimes in that industry you have to compress the time to make it affordable like you have to push yeah if you take the time you need it takes too long and you're upside down and and there's very few places i think chip is probably one of the only places that's like we're going to take a year, we're going to take three years to build like a Riddler level car. And like, we don't care. And yeah. the owner basically has to be like, I don't care either. I don't care how much it's going to cost. Because you have to float it until you can yeah, exactly. flip it. And it's the same, like, it's the same with what we're doing with my show. It's like, yeah. you have to put some mark in the sand and be like, all right, this is when we're going to try to get this done. But as the project gets bigger, as the expectations get bigger, as the deadline gets bigger. And then as like, that industry is unique in the automotive industry. Custom cars are unique in the automotive industry because it's very design as you go. Where like when I got into prototype stuff, the designers would have it finished like top to tail. Yeah. Like everything would be figured out interior, exterior, and then it would get sent to us and we'd have to fabricate it. And then occasionally they pop in and be like, last minute, we want to try to change this. How much is it going to cost first? You know? And then we'd negotiate with them. But custom car stuff is like, do you think this would look cool? And we'd be like, yeah, I think that'll look cool. And then you hack this car apart and melt it back together and bang the crap out of it. And then you're like, oh, we should move. We should move that one thing just a little more. Maybe we need to move that over there to really make it look great. And then you're cutting the car all apart again and banging it back together. Yeah. And 
working for Chip was the first person I worked with that this was just absolutely crazy making because he had no, he was, and the reason why he is so great and makes such great cars is that he's unwilling to, to apply logic. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but he would be like, we got to change this. I've been thinking about it for like a couple of days and you're like, dude, this is putting us back like two, three weeks, four weeks, a month back. Of but like, you know, like we're you starting know it's over. It's not going to work or it could be better. You, if it bugs you like that, you yeah. can't ignore it. Dude, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I really, I loved working for him because I understood that like, that's why his cars look like they do because every other dude that's building those cars didn't, didn't do that. Mm -hmm. refused to do that said it's not practical it's not realistic it's not affordable it's fucking stupid it's a stupid idea but it will look it would look so cool so chip never chip is not chip is going to sleep tonight with no concern over how how much cooler something could have looked like he he made it he made it he did that to it as yeah. inconvenient as it was you know like i remember being in the spray booth at like 11 at night and i was about to paint all night and he shows up and I'm like, sick, he's coming to like rally me and tell me he's stoked. And like, and he's like, we got to move like this belt line. Like we're, we need to move this belt line down. So like all the surfacing, everything, we had to grind it all off, hammer it down. Re and I was like, dude, I'm painting this car. Like I'm literally, I was just about to put base coat on it. And he's like, ew, you know, like we gotta do it. And I just remember like I'm riding my bike home and like, I'm going to cry too. Like, I can't, I can't do this. It's crazy making. And I learned so much from him at that job too, because it wasn't personal. It wasn't, I would so quickly be like, what did I do wrong? That like, mm -hmm. I, it's my fault that that's that way. And like, I'm going to get fired for this. And really it was like, no, he just had to see it there to know he had to move it down. The interesting thing that, and I didn't get to explore this so much in the custom car world because they just don't really do it so much, but kinetics I got really into and like figuring out how to collapse seats and like double armatures and things that like mm -hmm. really move and operate mechanically. Mm -hmm. That stuff was like where I was just like, this is the coolest shit ever. And at the time, I'm skipping forward a little bit, but at the time at Five Axis, when my boss saw what I was doing and how I could figure these things out, he was like, oh, holy shit. Like he really lit up and he's like, do you think we can like, and every project was like, okay, but how can we actuate this? And how can we make this like pop out of the trunk and do that? And you know, like the client wants this door to open in some untraditional way, like mm. let's prototype some stuff out and figure it out. Um, well, that's what I think is so interesting about you as a human, but especially going into this show is that your art style is very much inspired by traditional Renaissance painters yeah. and all of the great painters from that time weren't only a painter, right? They were an engineer. They were making prototypes. They were, I mean, that's, what's amazing about the Renaissance. Like that's what the Renaissance was, was just like, if you could be creative, you could be creative and you weren't just, making sets and making writing plays and playing songs and like da vinci's an amazing dude for that reason and one thing i one thing i really like about da vinci's life is at when he was alive painting was much more profitable and there was a much higher demand for painting than there was for an excellent engineer and i think he spent a lot of his life wanting to be an excellent engineer he really loved yeah. military engineering developing military weapons and things like that but bridges and 
tons of really cool stuff. His sketchbooks are incredible if you ever have a chance to look at them. But um, I think he wanted to be an engineer more than he wanted to be a painter. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that about him, I thought, what a lucky son of a bitch to live <laughs> at a time when like people didn't like engineering. Engineering wasn't that fundamental, but like, holy shit, you can paint. We need you to paint. It's the opposite of now. It was the opposite of now. And so for me now to be like, I could be a full-time engineer for the rest of my life, but like I'm a painter and I love engineering and I think it'll always be a part of my life, but I'm a painter and I'm like, damn it, Da Vinci, (laughs) we could have traded, man. (laughs) Um, But yeah, skipping really far forward. But I think like one thing I do think is worth mentioning and one thing that this connects to, as I was writing my life story too, this connects to it where in snoring, you have to try something, a trick, learning a new trick so many times, like so many times. And the first time you land it, it's probably an accident. Like yeah. you, you're going to get lucky a couple of times and land it, but it's so much getting off, getting up and dusting yourself off and finding your goggles and your mitten and whatever else went flying and like, go try it again, you know? And in prototyping too, it's the same way. Like we use a term in the industry called fail early where it's like, okay, all ideas are on the table. How are we going to solve this problem? Everybody has a voice. Everybody puts up, okay, what's our three to five options, realistic (laughs) options, plausible options. Boom. Okay. Let's start testing those out. Let's find out what fails. And so then you start testing those five options, maybe you're down to two or three. And then you're like, okay, to suss out these next two or three, we're going to have to make some investments. We're going to have to buy or build or machine or mill some stuff out. So it's like, okay, which one do we think is the best option? It's all based on plausibility and a very narrow success rate that it's going to work. But yeah, like all these jobs that I was doing, I was getting so comfortable with failure and things not working and having a really peaceful understanding of like, how long it takes for something to work and that you're not, you're probably not going to get it right on your first time. And sometimes you get all the way to the end of an ideation and it bomb and you're like, Oh fuck, this is not going to work, <laughs> dude. And then you got to go back and be like, okay, what were our two and three options? And knowing what we know now, do, are those going to work? And do we need to reinvent everything here? I think I, re- I don't want to say regret, but I'm surprised that I didn't connect those dots with my relationship with art as a career because I would spend so much time like making this and people are going to buy it. People are going to love it. And then crickets. And you're like, shit, what did I do? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with my art? No one loves me, you know? And really you're just trying something and it failed. And that, that was it. And there's so many parts to that. Oh, totally. It's not just the the work of art. It's like, how did you sell it? And who did you talk to? And what price was it? And does anyone know it exists? (laughs) Exactly. And like the, so watching the moments I'm having now, self-discovery of be like, Mm -hmm. I have all the tools. I've been implementing them for fucking decades. And like, why am I? not see, why am i not seeing that here and why am i not having the same approach so yeah i think learning to do that now and approach it from that direction where like this is gonna this is gonna fail until it works and mm-hmm. like buckle the fuck up and i think like 
I mean, it's like the gift and the curse of the creative where you're like, if I could stop doing this, like this hurts so bad. If I could stop doing this, I would, because this sucks. And then you wake up the next morning, you're like, crap, I need to make something. (laughs) (laughs) So so go ahead. Well, I, I think there's a lot of people come to me and they want a very specific formula for like, just make it work. And yeah. there are parts of business that there are best practice formulas that we can try and implement for a specific business, but you are also a variable in that formula. <laughs> so if you don't like the steps, like I've had right. so many clients, you've been one of them that's been like, I don't want to do that plan. I'm like, yeah. well, I know that this one works. You're like, oh, nope, it's not for me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> But there's there's things we know that we can borrow and steal from people who have been successful. Right, right. And then to your point, there's this whole space where because your products and your approach and your personality and all like these are variables yeah. that have never been put into this formula before. Sure, sure. So we're going to have to see what happens <laughs> totally and i think that really scares a lot of people so I'm, I'm glad you're bringing it up because there's so many people listening who have a business and they don't know they think it's them yeah oh yeah dude. and it's not it's just like we haven't found the right combination of people or processes or we haven't opened the right door yet right right i think i think there's so many things in our life. There's so many comparisons you can make, but look at something like baking a cake, right? Where like you can mix your flour, you can mix your eggs, you can have all the ingredients you need to make a cake. And then you like have your oven set to like a thousand degrees for like six hours and you everything's, you don't have a cake anymore. You just know, like one just one little <laughs> variable, you know, or like you're making a cake and you mix up your salt and sugar and you make a cake with salt and then you cook it perfectly and it's disgusting. So like that, looking at it as an ingredient list and as a process and then almost algorithmically, you can be like, okay, if this template's working for, like for me to say the word business funnel is hilarious (laughs) (laughs) because I'm not going to act like I didn't know that word three months ago because I 100% didn't. But like to look at someone do a webinar on business models, generic business models, and be like, there's a business funnel. Nothing is successful without a business funnel. Like not, no one's making money mm-hmm. without a business funnel. Whether you are doing it accidentally or not, like you can be consciously aware of your business funnel and investing in developing it. Or you can just be like accidentally stumbling through it or have it pre-set in somehow, whether it's your family's business or something like that, where you like inherited a business funnel. And then you can just, dude, it still exists. And you can change elements inside of it. You know, like something that seems really exciting to me, like take a movie like The Bear or something, since it's such a huge part of common culture is like you, if you took a better restaurant that he inherited and then he could just build off of that. Like, obviously, it's way better to make a movie that's absolute dumpster fire of a restaurant <laughs> and then have him try to make a Michelin star restaurant out of it. But if you just took a good family business restaurant that was working really well, had people, customers that were coming for years, and you just changed a few elements and made it your own and, mm-hmm. and, sh- bent and shifted a couple things and kept the classics, it's like, boom, you're expanding and making, reinventing some a business model that totally works. But 
it's interesting for me that I look at my engineering work as like, I've never had to make a business funnel for that. But if I needed work, my phone would ring. Yeah. And I never... You didn't realize I you never, were working the funnel. Dude, I don't have a <laughs> website. I don't... <laughs> Like I don't have, yeah. I don't have anyone making calls. I'm not on LinkedIn. Like no one knows my business, my current business as an engineer fabricator. And whenever I need work, the phone rings. Well, it's because if it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And it's a reputation. Like it took me Ye- how, 20 years now that I've been doing this. It took me 20 years and I had to work super hard and be super pro and be really easy to work with to survive that industry. Um, and that was how I developed my business funnel, you know, unknowingly, like unknowingly mm-hmm. to me. But to look at like, okay, we're building one from scratch that's totally new, totally different. And I've never I've never been cognizant that it's like what I'm what I'm doing makes it really interesting. So obviously you were on the Powerful Ladies podcast. <laughs> yeah. As one of our powerful gentlemen. <laughs> what does being powerful mean to you? Oh shit. I was wondering what the hard hitting questions were going to (laughs) be. No, I think I was nervous about like, if she asked me about business, she's going to be in trouble. If I'm on this podcast, if you're listening to this and you think I'm going to help you with your business, you're in trouble. (laughs) You can confide with me in how how bad all of my business is going. But um, anyway, on topic, what is powerful to me? I think, I mean, power is an interesting word i think for me it's being resilient and like coming back every time like fall down five times stand up six you know like that to me is a huge asset of mine that i'll have but also like is there power and compassion like finding compassion and compromise and like finding i think my personality I'm very much the wet blanket who's like, okay, who's upset in the room? Why are they upset? How do I calm this and get every, everybody needs to be cool. If I'm in the room, like nobody's upset. We're everybody's cool. And like, that's probably my greatest power. And if someone's upset, I'm like, I'm cooling that guy out is not an option for him, for whoever to be upset. So it works really. I'm really powerful in meetings and like in debates and conversations about what we're going to do or how we're going to solve a problem. Cause I'm like, okay, somebody's upset right now. And like, we need, I need to let this person know that like, it's not personal. This is, you know, like I'll, I'll I'll really help a lot in meetings. And I find myself being like, every time there's a meeting where shit goes down, I wasn't in it, Yeah, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't think that's an accident. (laughs) I don't think that's just uh, something weird that happens. Um, A coincidence, especially for men. When we first hear the word powerful, we think like alpha, bossy, yelling and screaming, finger wagging, like that. Aggressive. Aggressive. Yeah. Is like what men would go to when they think of the word powerful. So, and I'm not, I'm not that dude. <laughs> like for sure, I'm not that dude. So it's try to, it's really interesting to think about what my version of that is. But I think, I think finding your own power is like, how you become a powerful person, right? Like you can try to be, you can try to find how how someone else is powerful and be like, oh, I want that, but that's not yours. Like that's not, that's their power. That's not your power. When you see someone operating like in their place of power, 
it's fucking awesome. It's awesome to watch. It's awesome to be a part of. It's never something that you're like, whoa, with the power, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's really like, I think when people are using power the right way, it's, it's, it's a beneficial to everyone. I think for me, it's probably like how I would define it the best without like, <laughs> I don't talk about myself very much and it's tough to talk about myself. So I like how I just make generalizations of yes, what I think power did. is cool. But yeah, that's how I would like to explain my power is like finding the way to make everyone grow and be better from what I'm doing or we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's like how I feel powerful. What are you most proud of? Oof. I love how hard I work for a lot of stuff. Like mm-hmm. I love that. I developed an ethic that's like, you're not, nobody's handing this to you. And that's what I always love about like people talking about sport. Like I could listen to Kobe Bryant talk about like how to get good at basketball or Michael Jordan even too. I think Kobe maybe like was a little more succinct about it. But when he would say things like, if I get up two hours earlier, I can get two hours more practice in than everybody else. And then you add that up to a year and that's like half a year more practice than everybody else. And like, if I do that for five years, you'll never catch me yeah you'll never catch me um and i think learning that early and being like all right dude if i want to be good at drawing and painting clock in do the work ten thousand hours like do the work go paint if you ever want to bum an artist out tell them they have a god-given ability because it's like fuck you buddy i work super hard <laughs> like i wish god had given me this ability because it would have been so much easier than what i went through to develop this skill so for the record to any other artists they're all sighing relief right now don't ever say that to an artist or don't say you have a natural talent because we didn't we don't i don't have any i had a great head start with my family that i was born into i had a great head start but I don't have a God-given ability. I don't have a natural talent. I fucking work my ass off. There's nothing in it you think that is a special something that <sighs> you have? Like, even if like, something I think we undervalue in ourselves is how we see the world and we don't realize that we see it differently. Uh, like, do you, do you see shadows differently than somebody else might or the light? Like, you really think all of it, you... I learned it. I learned it all. You had to crack rocks I learned, to get I all learned, of it. I learned it all. Mm-hmm. I think I think if I want to really where I could say that I have, I have a natural talent mm-hmm. for this is that I'm sensitive and I'm observant. You see Tragically is the word that came to mind, but I'm not. I'm so sensitive. I perceive so much shit. I watch people. I've, I've like, and I've had it all my life. I read body language. Mm-hmm. I'm always checking in. Are they comfortable? Are they uncomfortable? Are they okay? But you develop these hyper awarenesses to things. And I don't know if that's something I'm born with or it's something I learned. Like, and, and it, the comparison I like to use the most with art and creativity is like, you want to get stronger, you want to lift weights, or you want to have an, a, you're a man and you want to have a strong body. Mm-hmm. And you're a super scrawny little wimpy kid. And you go into the gym and you see some dude just like ripping bench pressing like 400 pounds. You're like, holy shit, dude, that guy rips. And you're like, okay, I'm going to just, I got to do the bar. Yeah. And like, everybody's okay with that. Like nobody walks in and sees a wimpy kid like pushing the bar and is like, dude, put 300 pounds on there. Like everybody's cool with that. Creativity is the exact same way. 
when people look at what I do, they go, holy shit, how did you do that? How did you make that? Where did you come up with that idea? And I'm like, dude, I've been pushing weight for 25 years, 30 years. I've been pushing weight. I've been doing squats, bench press and everything. And like, it looks impossible. Yeah. And it people don't connect that dot. We're like, no, I was never, I was bad at art. I was totally bad at art for a long time, <laughs> for a long time in my life. And like, I had to lift the weights. I had to do the work. The mm-hmm. only thing is you don't look at me and see, oh, he looks different. Mm-hmm. And that quantifies why he can lift 300 pounds. Well, that's why it's so valuable too when people can have seen the journey that you've yeah. been on. Yeah. It's so the same thing, I think, for anyone who is in business because you see people being successful and oh, you're like, totally. oh, they must like overnight success. And you want to punch you in the face because <laughs> exactly. you're like, wait, what? Yeah. I've been working a hundred hours for yeah, 10 years. For like, 10 years. suck it. This is my fifth business. I've been bankrupt yeah. three times. I'm yeah. upside down on two credit cards. Like, no, this is not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think like, but I will always be an advocate for that perspective on creativity because mm-hmm. I think people never give it people never take that perspective on it. And they just think like, I don't have it. I don't have it. It's yeah, because you think about people having at least a a leaning towards being better at it. Like you're, yeah. and I don't know why we do this in the US in particular. Um, it's very German of us to be like, oh, you're supposed to be a mathematician. You're supposed yeah, yeah. to be an artist. You're take supposed this personality to- test. <laughs> right, and they yeah. make you, in, in Germany, you do that like to figure out what high school you're gonna right. go to. And so- no. It's, I don't know why we cut people off so early in sure. what your path could be. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, thank you. It's why I have a job because I get to <laughs> tell people to, un, to give those things up. They can still do it. It's yes. not too late. No, yeah. I totally agree. And I think, I think um, one thing I think about a lot, and then I'll come back to working with Chip because I can connect these dots. One thing I think about a lot, and there's studies that show this, that young children uh six seven eight nine they have immense curiosity they're becoming more Mm -hmm. dexterous they can begin to get pretty good at art and then there's this turning point of when they become self-aware and self-judgment and shame enters their life and they think oh the kid next to me is drawing better than me i shouldn't Mm -hmm. be an artist and their their ability gets gets squashed right there is that a word, swamped? It squashed. Is squashed. <laughs> but I want like a gentle squashed. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so it can extinguish. It can extinguish their creativity when they start to become self-aware. So one of the things that is incredible about um, Renaissance artists is that many of them were fostered as ten-year-olds, twelve-year-olds. Like Bernini did was Bernini was doing modern incredible human portraits at like 13, 14, 15, like museum quality in churches in Rome as a 13 year old. And his father was a sculptor. And so there's same with Michelangelo. Da Vinci was a little later starter, but he started early too. And you see this a lot with artists of that time. And I wonder, is this what gave them this insane catapulting launch into creativity where they never got they never got hit in the Achilles. They never and got smooshed. They never got smooshed, dude. They mm-hmm. never 
they were just fostered all along and they say hey, you like this you're good at this you don't have self-awareness or judgment yet we're going we're sending you to school already or you're going to work under botticelli like you're going to work under some incredible artist and like foster that it's- and not only was there no social media there was what 20 other people in your village that you had to compare <laughs> yeah, against. Yeah, you had to send them out of town sometimes, you know, like you're yeah. going away from your family as a 13-year-old to learn how to be an artist now because you're you're good and you're into it now. Your world was so small, but there was so just small. less, so much less comparison. Yeah, I wish that that was maybe being fostered more in, mm-hmm. in younger generations and coming up and supporting that. And the other thing too, is that like, it's so, it's also very perishable. Like it's so much like going to the gym where like, if you don't go for a couple of weeks, if I'm not drawing for a couple of weeks, I'm bad at it. It's like going back to spin class. Dude, and you're yeah, like, like I, it takes me, it takes me a couple shitty drawings to get back caught up and feeling like, okay, cool. I'm back on top of the ball again. And another really frustrating thing is painting doesn't support drawing and drawing doesn't support painting. So if I'm painting a lot in the back of my mind, I'm like, my drawings are falling apart right now. Like I need to just sketch something. And when I'm drawing a lot, I'm like, just get, just paint something just with black and white. Like it doesn't even matter. Just paint something. So you can be like quick with the brush. Um, and so for that thing, it's like a really, it's a you have to be a bit masochistic and you have to love just like it's not fun it's not going to be fun a lot <laughs> when i think that's also coming back to your show it's it's very similar to these guys that you're following who dedicate their weekends to racing a vintage sport yeah that they have to build things they have to get creative about their equipment sometimes yeah yeah parts are hard to find like it's you're only doing it because you love it yeah there's no logical reason to do it mm, otherwise their wives are pissed about it (laughs) (laughs) nobody they all got hurt one time and they're my age you know like they're not young bucks that spring back um but yeah it's it totally it's totally a passion project for them. And I think that's mm-hmm. what I was really drawn to as well, where I was like, there's no reason for them to do this other than that. They just really like it and really think it's cool. And to me, these guys that I work with were mentors and I looked up to them so much. And any minute I got to hen- hang or spend with them, I was just like, oh, they're so cool. They know so much and they know how to make such cool stuff. All their cars, everything they built is just so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that crosses over to them racing their motorcycles where like, yeah, they want to get the custom Harley Davidson shirt. So it matches from the 1920s and like, yeah, they want to get the custom leathers made that match from the 1920s too. So it's like they work out or like, Oh, they like these pants from the seventies. So they match that up. And then, yeah, they just really like, it's a, it's a, it's a creation. Like Mm -hmm. they're fully super creative dudes to build this whole lookout and have their helmets and, bikes custom painted to match and like pinstriped out and it's just i see it and i'm like that's perfect it's well, perfect well then you go and race with the risk that you're gonna ruin it oh, all yeah. <laughs> so you're gonna put it in the dirt yeah. uh, any lap yeah no it's totally true and like they build it to do that and mm-hmm. there's no like oh what if i mess it up it's like no i built this for this and that's what it's for and then we get to keep tinkering and do it again and, and try to make it faster yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I saw these guys hanging out on their motorcycles and I'm like, holy shit, those are genre paintings. Like those are genre paintings. Um, 
and that's i think what really got me excited about it was i felt that callback to like there they are like there's a, a genre painting and that fits in with me wanting to create timeless art that people don't know. Like these paintings, when you see them, I was really deliberate to where like, you don't know if they're from, you don't know if they're racing new bikes in 1930 or if it was last summer. <laughs> like <laughs> I take phones out and I'll switch, like if it's a pop-up tent or a new van or something, I'll like switch it out to try to make it look generic and not timeless and look timeless but but making a timeless look is so much harder than i thought like there are moments where like i'm really stuck here like i really don't know how to do this without this super contemporary thing here and so i had a lot of really creative i had to get super creative and come up with ways to like overcome like okay what is that thing and like did that exist back then and how can i make it look like something that exists back then well, and I think the work that you do, not just this collection, but your approach to art in general, it feels so familiar and comforting and it feels like it has so much depth and it's so different than what most contemporary art is looking like uh-huh. that so much of modern art, it feels a little emotionless. Sure. Where what you create feels so familiar. Like you could step into it, which you see in museums all the time, but you don't see people doing it now so right, much. Right, right. And there's elements of really feeling like you're waiting for, it's it's like when you watch Hogwarts or the, um, the entire Harry Potter series and the picture moves and you're not expecting it to, like mm. I'm waiting for your paintings to move, which is such a cool because you you want to stare at it longer like wait is it gonna go is it gonna move <laughs> i don't want to miss it like you think like when the guys are working on the bikes are they going to turn their head and look at you because you really feel like it's that fraction of a second you're peeking into where you know so much is happening before and after and so i just that you don't get that um feeling with so much art uh today that's an incredible compliment thank you you're welcome thank you yeah i think what was really fun about those paintings was I was familiar enough with those guys that I could kind of, I love to be invisible and just be the fly on the wall and observing. And like, it's a, it's a hundred percent a favorite pastime of mine. That's m- probably why I love like a house party way more than a club or something. Cause I can just like hang out in the kitchen at a house party and be like, okay, uh-huh. All right. I think I know what's going on in this. Room. You know, all the tea. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. And it's like, uh, that's, what's fun for me. But I liked those paintings because for all those reasons where it's like, you feel like at any minute you could sneeze and they would all look and be like, you're interrupting Yes. This perfect natural or naturally orchestrated like event that's happening, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I, yeah, I think that's like, I think we're always looking for, I think modern art, contemporary art, it's really hard to not fall into a gimmick and be like, oh, this is what's hot right now. Or Mm -hmm. like, and not dogging on street art or anything because i think street art's incredible and i think there are people that are doing it really well and and really crossing it over and visually it's like a beautiful thing to have in a, a home i think it looks awesome but what does that look like in 200 years yeah the levels of storytelling going on i think is really what brings something into transcend as an art form through perpetually you know like it'll it'll always be pertinent when in I, that sense. I know also that one of your like 
core values for if you like a piece of yours is, is the person who buys it and brings it into their home, are they going to be excited about the story they get to tell about right. the piece? And every piece you make, there's the layer, not just of what's the story in the painting, because it's like, what track is it at? Who are the writers? What were they doing? Yeah. Like, oh, let me tell you all about the entire flat track um, story and history and what it means. But then there's also the experience of getting to come and meet you and come to the show and see not the whole experience from your side as well. Sure. And now they have a story about meeting you and who else they met at the event. And then this paint, yeah. the layers just keep getting added on. Right. And so for your work, when someone gets it, whether it's a print or an original, there's already 50 million layers deep that they could do <laughs> on their point. own. Yeah. And now there's the story of you as the artist and the experience and so many other things where it becomes a treasured moment. Like that's how I collect right. art. Right. Like every piece I have, if you ask me, what's the story of this? Right. I could, we could talk about it for an hour. Sure. Oh, I mean, there's so much to chew on there. There's so <laughs> much to talk about right there. But I think, yeah. And I, I think one thing that, one thing that's wonderful about art is that the context is so subjective. And I've listened to people talk about why they love a painting, a famous painting. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, I love that painting because of this. And you start to realize that like, they, there's not enough information mm -hmm. and that is beautiful. When you watch a movie or when you read a comic book or when you read a book, there's no visual, but you know everything. And yeah. you can invent that person to the nth degree of how that story is told. But with a simple painting, a simple portrait of a person, you're taking your entire life experience and you're putting it into that painting. And I think something for me that I've had to challenge a lot with us working together is like, I have to create these descriptions for my paintings and I feel like I'm robbing people. I feel like I'm stealing away their, their interpretation. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Like I don't want to taint what their experience is with what, with why I painted it. And well, that's where you and I have had some really good totally. conversations. Well, and I think like your you your points are a hundred percent pertinent because as a sensitive person, as someone who's so creatively ripped, <laughs> I've been going to the gym. I'm a creative person. I can walk into a room and see a painting and go, I know that person's life story, dude. Yeah. I know that I know I know the therapist that person needs to go to. Like I know everything. And then I'll read the little box and be like, I don't like the little box as much. I like my story more. So I have to, you've made me aware that not everyone can do that. Well, not everyone can do it, but people also want, they want to hear from they your perspective. They need some handholding. <laughs> well, because sometimes it's handholding, but I think it's also like, if I read a great book or watch a great movie or if I yeah. get excited about something, Right. I do what a lot of people do is go on Google and like, oh, who was that actor? What was that thing? <laughs> and you fall down this rabbit hole yeah. of wanting to know as much as you can to add context to what you just right. saw or read or whatever. And so I think every product needs a description and these Dude. pieces become products. <laughs> and we're only writing a couple of sentences, but yeah. it's like, tell me in two sentences. Cliff notes. What's going on? Yeah. I, and or at a minimum, like when you do your amazing landscapes, I'm like, where is it? 
Just yeah. how we don't need to geotag it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like so, what country is it in? What yeah. what season was it? Right. Like I I immediately want to know something sure. because I'm excited. It doesn't mean that the people who want these cliff notes aren't getting an emotional reaction because they are. Right. But they're like, okay, I love this. Like, tell me more. Okay, great. Now I'm going to go and probably email you because I have more right. questions about this piece. But we need to have something. Plus, we need SEO <laughs> <laughs> at a real practical level. No, it was. I'm on. I'm on the team. I understand its importance now, but I really realized that, like, I'll use this term. I've had my head in a bucket. Where like all the groups I'm in, we're all super sensitive artists. We're all artists. We're all so in touch with creativity, and we all walk through a museum and can talk for hours about a painting and never even look who did the painting. Yeah, and be absolutely in love with it, and then later on be like, dude, who did that painting? That was so good. And we're like trying to track it down. So. I realized that I just thought that was kind of how everyone was. And then someone comes in from out of that world and is like, well, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. I don't get even any of that away from it. And so I think my approach to making descriptions now is like, okay, I want to try to give you a jump off point. Like I yeah. want to try to lead you up to the door and then like you take it, take it, try to take it like as a personal challenge, like try mm -hmm. to, who is that person? Who do you think that person is? Why do you think they're there? Um, because I don't think we're, we don't have those opportunities anymore. What? Everything is, t we're told how exact everything mm -hmm. is on social media, on movies. You know, it might be convoluted. It might take us a couple episodes and cliffhangers to <laughs> figure it out, but like you're going to find out and there's no mystery left. And I think that sense of mystery and that sense of like, choose your own adventure almost of just mm. like try try to with your own mind tell yourself a story like imagine a story you're you're not you can't be wrong like you can't you can't be wrong well that's my i've told you it's my favorite thing to do in a museum like my <laughs> yeah. sister and i were doing it all through italy like yeah. what's happening in that painting and we were kind of being assholes and figuring out the most ridiculous <laughs> stories we yeah, could yeah, yeah. none of them were would have passed an art history class <laughs> But there, I think there is, but I thought the exercise when we first started putting the descriptions together yeah. where you were so against it, I was like, fine, I'll just start. Yeah. And I wrote some and your reaction to my descriptions <laughs> was so interesting because some of them were pretty close and yeah. some were so far. Dude, and it's still, yeah, it's still a really exciting part. And I think for me, it really shows the elasticity and mm -hmm. potential of, of outcomes for paintings because even sometimes i would write a quick description and you would take that description in a totally different direction i'd be like oh well i didn't see the potential to take that description in that direction and mm -hmm. like i would bump it back to be like here's here's what it where, where it's really going for me um but yeah the that freedom of art mm -hmm. is like is what i think probably makes it so sacred and cherished mm -hmm. is that like we can all look at something insane like the Sistine Chapel and not understand you don't know anything that's going on but holy crap are you feeling something yeah like you're feeling something with just the imagery it's spectacular and and it's beautiful but you look at that image imagery and you look at those two hands almost touching and you're like oh fuck I something is happening there outside mm -hmm. of a religious context even you're like that is but a isn't powerful. that a religious experience yeah i mean 
maybe not an organ everybody's terms yeah yeah and how whoever's terms you want to make that you know is it a catholic experience no but is it a religious experience it's a spiritual experience it's a spiritual that's the best way to put it Um, but yeah like you can look at how to create images that are so powerful um mm -hmm. and i think oftentimes our own interpretations of a really really powerful image is what makes it powerful to us and you have potential to be like, oh, that's what that means? You know, like, I mean, crap. I <laughs> <laughs> you could take it. You, you can totally trash the yeah. most important you thing can totally in my life. torpedo it, you know? Um, and rarely has that, I don't think that's ever happened to me, but, or I don't think I've ever done that to someone with one of my works, but that potential out there for me is really, it's really something I want to be so careful of that, like, I've seen it happen with my mentor where they're like this painting he did at somebody and he's like, Oh, it looks just like my grandpa. And he was this guy. And I can just tell he was the same kind of person and blah, blah. And they buy this portrait. And then later on he was like, yeah, no, that was just a model that like, <laughs> he was a terrible guy. He was always late. Like <laughs> He would hit on the students and you're like, Oh my God. And that person's like, it's grandpa. It's grandpa. <laughs> Dude. So it's like, yeah, I, I really think you're like, you, you should be delicate with it and and you should let people have i think for me essentially i want to let people have that freedom yeah and i've never asked yeah. you to write a short story about a piece <laughs> no for sure we just need two to three sentences <laughs> so people know right and, and especially too when you think about because a lot of the stuff we've been working on is switching from you as an artist yeah. and being surrounded by artists to yeah. building your website in particular, but how we're talking about your art for the buyer. Dude, totally. And buyers and collectors of art can be on the opposite perspective than people who are making it. Right. And when just the word collector, right? If they want only pictures, only work from Italy, of mm -hmm. Italy, or mm -hmm. they only want a loaf of bread, like, if they are looking for those things and the words are there, then it's like the, it's the entry point. The same thing you were talking about where I'm like, okay, Mark approved you, you're in. <laughs> and they're like, oh, this is Italy. I want it. I want it. Yeah. And they don't need to know anything else. Right. But if we didn't say where it was, like mm -hmm. we're missing that opportunity to get somebody excited about something. Like, yeah. My mother gets so excited anytime she's ever been anywhere that somebody brings up. And she's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I was there. I'm it. Like it, yeah. it's, it causes that yeah. trigger. So I do think it's an interesting balance, whether you're making sneakers or you're making fine art of what the people who know, yeah. know yeah. versus what we put out so that there's some translated version right. for people who haven't been as close to it as sure. you are. Sure. You and I are really good at talking endlessly. Like since we've met, it's just been an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. And I know that we could have like a five-part podcast <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with totally. you. So we'll definitely have you back. But I want to do some rapid fire questions okay. to kind of close out your first episode. Okay. Um, when you look back at eight-year-old you, how psyched is eight-year-old you about where your life is today? Psyched. For sure. I... Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of what I would have been aware of as an eight-year-old me right now. I think all I can think of right now as an eight-year-old, I was probably hiding behind someone's leg. Mm -hmm. So the idea of like being on this podcast, the kid's probably like, who is that? Like, who is this guy? 
because there are moments that I have now where I'm like, who is this dude? And I think how my Instagram is changing and how I'm like starting to show up more and show my face and like talk on my Instagram was something that I was really intimidated and afraid to do. But I think working with you, working with other people really gave me the confidence that it's like, don't deny people that yeah. this part of you that's interesting and funny and, and an important part. And then when I see so many other artists who are like, oh my God, they're wacky and crazy and they're, they have such a great career. And it's like, those are all things that I'm doing in yeah. my living room <laughs> with my cat when I'm painting. Like I dance like an idiot, you know? Um, and so I think to get back on topic, I think it would be unbelievable for mm-hmm. my eight-year-old self to see who I am now. We ask everybody on the podcast where you put yourself on the powerful lady scale. If zero is average everyday human and 10 is the most powerful human you can imagine. Whoa. Where would you put yourself today and on an average day? Today, this is a pretty good day. That being said, I'm going to go like high seven, 7.8 or something. Okay. Only because I think, and what I've learned a lot from working with you is like, and having this approach where it's like my, I'm weak. I'm that skinny, scrawny kid who can't push the bar when it comes to marketing and business and selling myself and business funnels. And so I'm just now going to the gym and I'm like at that place where like I'm seeing results and I'm putting more weight on the bar and like I'm Mm -hmm. other people at the gym are like, yeah, buddy, you're getting stronger. Like that's really the phase I'm at. And it's really exciting and fun and new and like all challenges just feel like opportunities. But then occasionally you'll bring something up where you're like, you need to do this. And I'm like, nope. (laughs) like it's still like that's 600 pounds i can't squat that you know like i still see myself being like that's not in my reach yet Mm -hmm. um and so i like i like that because i'm like okay there's still a really long there's eventually a place where i'll get to there but for now i want to leave a lot of room because i think i have a long way to go yeah well you got a lot of fun things to get out yeah yeah it's all Mm -hmm. fun stuff but yeah Mm -hmm. seven seven and a half we've been asking everyone what is on their wish list? What do they want? What are they manifesting? What can they ask this powerful group that we can maybe have the answer for or help make happen for you? Dude, come to my show. Yeah. How do they do that? (laughs) There's a lot of pressure. I feel like I should be more prepared for this, but maybe I'll ask you instead No. (laughs) for people who want to buy art from you, get a commission, come to the show, support you. Where can they do all of those things? Okay. So my website, andrewpattersonfineart.com is the central place to find all that stuff. So you'll find info on commissions. You'll find works that are available for sure. Sign up for my email list because that's probably, I'm probably more excited about that than my website. Like that's become a really fun part of self-expression for me. So it's, it's funny, it's informal, it's wacky. And then you get early access to art I'm selling. You'll get monthly deals on um, some pieces that I'm pulling out of the archives to sell. And um, you'll be up to date on everything that is going on with me. So if anything, if you, if I wanted you to do any one singular thing after listening to this, it for sure would be to join the email list and you can find it. It'll pop up on my website when you go to it. But after that, October 13th, downtown LA bike shed moto. There's a whole page for it on my website now too. You can go there, read more about it and find the event bright to RSVP for it. And then even if you're not local, sign up for the email list and you'll get early access to prints and originals when it goes up online. So this show is really significant for me. And I, I sort of feel like 
in a way the whole world's artistically watching because a lot of my artistic friends and mentors we've all been recently exhausted by galleries and the gallery system and so i've been chewing on this idea and trying to find out how do we break away how do we break this mold and none of us are happy just being stuck trying to sell stuff on instagram um but we don't want to be locked into some gallery for years that we can't get out of that we have to give them half of whatever we make and they might not sell our work and everything so to me this is a huge opportunity to show what can be done with artists when they choose not to succumb or give in in my opinion to Mm -hmm. what's happening in the art world as far as art sales and um it would just be awesome for people to come support it and Mm -hmm. be a part of it but the original point of that was i'm going to have art for sale that's in the gallery available on my website so it doesn't matter if you're in antarctica or if you're in london or if Mm -hmm. you're in sacramento and you don't want to drive down i'll have art in the show that will be available on my website three or four days before the show and it'll run through the weekend so Mm -hmm. there is potential for us to have our over our opening night or the pop-up night and have all my work sold which would be an absolute dream um so yeah i think i think this is something that i hope can kind of change what how we're selling art i think we're really finding a way to take advantage of everything that's happening with the gates coming down you know Mm -hmm. and and people not needing galleries and galleries not really meeting anyone's expectations so i think this is like i want this to work not just for me but for all artists you know like i want this to be how we sell art now yeah and you're gonna have about 10 originals maybe maybe a few more yes uh paintings and drawings paintings and drawings a couple drawings but yeah yeah, mostly paintings and then we're going to be making prints in at least one size if not two two sizes for some of the you know heavy hitters yeah heavy hitters significant works so we'll have all the prints available there'll be an open-ended run that will essentially you'll be making pre-orders so we'll have like a five or ten day period of pre-orders and then after that it'll be uh done Mm -hmm. till the next one yeah well, thank you so much for being a guest to sharing your story and your show and what's coming up with myself and everyone who is listening. Um, and thank you for trusting me in this process because <laughs> it's been one of the like most rewarding experiences I've had. And to see the progress that you've made and how you are equally running towards it and resisting moments <laughs> at the same time. It's it's like very entertaining to be like next to you in this process. Oh man, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being there and helping me through all of it. Yeah, you've been incredible. Thanks. I think um I forgot what I was gonna say. Yeah, I think for me it's important to come and talk about my life and my process because I know it's familiar to so many creatives and I know that there's so many people out there that might be sitting on a pile of drawings and being like, fuck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So go out there and do something, do something with them. People want to see it. Yeah. People want to see art. They want to see your art. They want to see your art and they, and they want to know about it. Like, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. A core philosophy of, of my entire business is that we need the crazy, ridiculous unicorns that you are. <laughs> Because there's 
so much talent and possibility in that and in people doing what they know they're supposed to do. Yeah. And you can't be a contribution to others until you share it. Dude, for real. For real. And you and ultimately, like, I heard this quote, and it's kind of all I can think about with decision making, but it was um, if you can't afford the price of winning, wait till you get the bill for regret. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> yeah. Mostly I use it when I have to spend money. <laughs> but, but in other contexts, I think it's it's been a really empowering, empowering um, phrase to keep in mind. Because I, re I really do think like, and it took me 40 years or more now to get to this place of being like, who's going to do this? Are you going to do it or not? The cavalry is not coming. The cavalry is not coming. Yeah. Yeah. No one's going to make time for you. No one is out here making time for you. Your boss is not, your girlfriend's mm -hmm. not, your boyfriend's not. No one's making time for you. If there's something that you want to do with your life, no one's going to show up at your door and say, here, here's a year of your life to do whatever you want. No one's mm -hmm. going to do that. And it took me a long freaking time. Everybody's going to ask for more. Everybody's yeah. going to ask for more time. Everybody's going to ask for more work. Everybody's going to say, oh, we got to get this done. And none of that's your fault. And no one's going to make time for you until you say, I'm making time for me. I'm making time for this. It's too important now. It is. It's too important. You're yeah. too important and too talented. So thank you for choosing <laughs> yeah. yourself. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, honestly, I couldn't have done it without you. Like getting the push, being accountable, having an account buddy, <laughs> but really like feeling with everything you're helping me with now, I was, I was lost and didn't know how to do. Like I was screaming at the moon going like, I want people to buy my, every, every time I post on Instagram, nobody buys anything. <laughs> and it's like, wh why would they, yeah. you know, like once knowing what I know now, that's like, what an idiot, <laughs> you know, like just how can I crack the algorithm? How can I figure this out? Every, you know, I just need people. So many people are selling art on Instagram. How come I'm not? And no, that is, <laughs> that's not it. That's not it. It's and not so, the algorithm, it's the people. It's it's the people and it's the eyes and it's finding out really cool and fun ways to get people to get their eyes on what you're making. So <laughs> yeah, I, it's an honor to be here and to talk to your, your group and yeah. be a powerful lady. You sure are. <laughs> <laughs>